The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the recent ruling by the SEC listing standards for recovery of erroneously awarded compensation with Chase Anderson, the market president of our Phoenix office. Adam, Chase, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, Chase, welcome be, back. Yeah, I'm glad to be back and I got a new podcast host. Uh, this is fantastic. <laughs> this is an intimidating seat to be in. Uh, it's smartest man I know, followed Absolutely. by the most creative witty man I know. Well, so this is a very intimidating seat. <laughs> yeah. So it's hot. It's hot. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, hey, Chase, listen, I know it's been a while since you've been back on the show. Why don't you reacquaint our new listeners uh, with a little bit of your background? Yeah, glad to. Um, been with Embark almost two years now. Time flies when you're having fun. But uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm the Phoenix market president and also the capital markets practice leader. So I work very closely with Adam anything SEC, anything capital market related, IPOs, SPACs, M&A right now is the flavor of the day and carve-outs primarily. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, Chase, listen, before we get into the nitty gritty of the ruling, can you give us a general overview of the rule and uh, what the SEC was addressing here? Yeah, absolutely. So on October 26, 2022, the SEC adopted the final rule requiring that all listed companies adopt and disclose a clawback policy as required under Dodd-Frank. Um, this has been a long-awaited new rule. Uh, it's been in motion for quite some time, almost more than a decade. Uh, in 2010, the Dodd-Frank Act added Section 10D to the Exchange Act, uh, requiring the SEC to direct the national securities exchanges, NASDAQ, NYSE, uh, that, to establish listing standards that require issuers to develop and implement a, a clawback policy. Uh, these final rules follow the SEC's issuance of proposed rules uh, from July of 2015, which laid quiet until reopening uh, two separate comment periods in October 2021 and June 2022. Um, so the concept of clawbacks is not new. Section 304 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, SOX, of 2020 of 2002 contains a recovery provision that is triggered when an accounting restatement results from an issuer's misconduct. This new rule is a little different, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but uh, actual misconduct was the historical uh, um, rule. So the new clawback rule requires that a listed company adopt and disclose a policy for the recovery of incentive compensation from its current and former executive officers in the event the company is required to prepare an accounting restatement due to material noncompliance. And I think, Adam, you're going to talk a little bit more about what that means mm -hmm. um, in a little bit. So uh, the final rule also requires national exchanges, as I just mentioned, 
to prohibit the listing of any security of an issuer that does not develop and implement a clawback policy that complies with the new rule. So that's a pretty uh, detrimental policy. If you don't have this, you're going to be delisted. So pretty, uh, pretty serious stuff. The policy must provide that in the event an issuer is required to prepare an accounting restatement, uh, including to correct an error that would result in a material misstatement if the error were corrected in the current period or left uncorrected in the current period. So again, Adam's going to talk a bit more about this, give his take on it. So the final rule also requires national exchanges to prohibit the listing of any security of an issuer that does not develop and implement a clawback policy that complies with the new rule. Uh, very detrimental, um, very, very important. Uh, so the issuer will be required to recover from any current or former executive, as I mentioned, uh, incentive-based compensation, we'll talk about what that is here in a second, that was erroneously awarded during the three years preceding the date the restatement was required. So glad that Adam's here. You've got a photographic memory. So for the listeners, anything that I mistakenly say, I know I will be corrected. So um yeah, well, we're, we're lucky to have you. Adam, <laughs> before we have you jump in sure. and opine on this, you know, Chase, can you give our listeners um, some additional context, if you know, what prompted this? Were we seeing some issues with uh, some of these executives receiving enormous compensations, despite the fact of having um, financials that were inaccurate or erroneous, et cetera? What, what was really the cause for, for wanting to put this out? Yeah. Um- like I said earlier, you know, this is there's been rules like this in place for quite some time, but recently it's been more investor activism and investor protections to make sure that um, you know these executives aren't getting compensated for misleading or erroneous misstated financial statements. So the shareholders and the business um, is allowed to go recover money that was erroneously given as compensation. Okay. Great. Now, Adam, would love to hear your thoughts on this rule and um, everything that pertains to it. Yeah, just to layer in a few more things um, onto what Chase was saying. So, you know, obviously he stated that a large part of the rule is around disclosures, right? So disclosures of policies and then disclosures of any um, actual restatement, clawback type recovery events that actually occur, both in annual reports as well as any, you know, proxy um, statements that are filed. I think one thing to note is that the rule applies equally as well to all types of issuers. Um, so this includes your emerging growth companies, your smaller reporting companies, and your foreign private issuers as well. So it's pervasive across all types of registrants um, for the SEC. And then as far as kind of the transition for the rule itself, or maybe just backing up for a second here, actually, you know, the rule is not a mandate specifically for registrants. It's actually a mandate more so for the exchanges like Chase was talking about. And then it's up to those exchanges to essentially create policies that conform to this SEC rule, although they have the ability to actually make their own policies more like more restrictive than the actual SEC rule if they chose to do. Uh, but they're responsible then for establishing rules for their national exchange. So the, the rule itself allows up to a year from when it was essentially published in the Federal Register for those exchanges to come up with whatever that policy will be for you know issuers on their exchange. And then once those exchanges have established their rules, companies on that exchange have essentially 60 days to be compliant with those policies. So if you kind of just do the math and think about the timing of when this rule came out, and you think about you know potentially the length of how long an exchange might have, you know you're looking at a lot of people potentially having to comply with this 
by you know the end of 2023 and then for sure into 2024. So not that far off. What's interesting about this, this whole rule is about getting money clawed back when there's misstatements. But it's in, what are your thoughts on if the misstatements result in beneficial results? Are, are the companies going to go back and pay these executives more money? I guess that's an interesting question. I think it kind of gets into the accounting a little bit more. So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but a lot of times, you know, I can see what you're saying. Like you say, you have a financial metric you had to achieve essentially to invest in a certain award. Um, and you didn't achieve that, but then, you know, an accounting error actually corrected it to where a certain metric was met. Right. So in my mind, it's almost like reassessing the, you know, with a performance condition or gap, you know, it's like whether or not it's probable. So you kind of go back and apply that same type of logic and guidance mm -hmm. to whether or not you should have, you know, issued additional awards or they should have invested in other types of awards. Um, so it, it's an interesting, I guess, thought, but I guess it really just comes down to just yeah. establishing the accounting under well, 718. Yeah. You read the rules and it's just so detrimental to these executives. If something bad happens, they got to give money back, but in case. Right. And I think this rule is intended for like where obviously there's been payouts. So yeah. in a lot of cases, most of the incentive-based comp would have been for awards that were already earned. Um, so, you know, they've received the shares or the cash or whatever it is. And so they're clawing back some of those those assets of the holders. Um, but it could also apply equally, I think, as well to non-vested awards too. So Yeah, I was thinking like cash bonuses. Mm -hmm. Should get a bigger bonus. Yeah, definitely <laughs> interesting <laughs> thoughts there. Okay, so listed companies have to adopt these clawback policies. Got that crystal clear there. Let's start with what kind of events actually require these clawbacks. I know we're going to talk big R, little R. Uh, Adam, do you care to explain it all? Yeah, uh, I know some of these. You and I just uh, we just did a podcast not too long ago on uh, yeah. restatements as well. So we went a bit more into it there. So definitely check that out. If uh, that was with Nicole Harger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A member of our quality team. Yep. 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 So I think one interesting thing to note about this rule is that it applies equally to all types of restatements. So, you know, known more colloquially as little r, big r restatement. So a revision or a true, um, prior period restatement. So just to clarify for people on what the differences are between them. So a big R or a reissuance restatement, you'll hear a lot of people refer to it as that is when you've got an error or errors that are materially, uh, would materially impact the prior periods, um, prior reporting periods. And it would require, you know, an entity to essentially have to go back and restate those prior periods. Um, you, you know, as soon as, basically as soon as they possibly could they got to notify the users of the financial statements immediately that those you know statements can no longer be relied upon because there are prior period errors that are material so it, it causes a a lot of havoc in the organization when stuff like that happens um, on the contrary a little r restatement is essentially where you've got errors that aren't necessarily material to the prior period but not correcting those errors would cause a material misstatement in the current period. So you'll often hear this referred to as a revision restatement. And the differences here with a with a little r restatement, you know, obviously you would need to notify your users of the financial statements. Um, but there isn't a necessarily an immediate need to have to reissue statements because the prior period is not materially misstated. So what generally happens is companies will essentially fix the error when they reissue 
the prior period in their next fiscal year's financial reporting. Uh, it was pretty contro- controversial oh. to include the little R's, if I'm not mistaken. It uh, is. And our, our friend Hester Pierce, I say our friend, <laughs> I was actually with Adam in D.C. a couple months ago, about a month. Yeah, we were. We actually listened to Hester talk and fascinating, fascinating person. Love the... Um, the fact that she's there and they're not just rubber stamping stuff and they get to have these debates and it's quite impressive, like the thought process, the logics of, you know, at least Hester, how she approaches things as well. So I know yeah, she's, she's, she gets she's hot definitely, on you know, she takes the, the viewpoint, obviously, of less regulation where she can. Um, at least my my viewpoint on her is that I think the broader commissioners of the SEC, like I think they view regardless of the air and the period it impacts, they view it as like a material non-compliance event. And so they shouldn't necessarily distinguish between the two because in their, their minds, they thought there could be creative accounting being done to potentially try to get some loopholes where they try to convey errors or more little R restatements if little R's were outside the scope of this rule. So I think to make it more holistic and if the intent is really to basically avoid shareholders bearing the cost of having to pay compensation for things that are erroneous in the financial statements, uh, the viewpoint I think is, is, I think that's why they led ultimately to include all types of restatements. I guess one thing to clarify is if you've got an error that's not material to the prior period or not material to the current period, um, and you're going to correct that error anyways, it's what we call an out of period um, adjustment. That does not trigger any type of recovery um, type of assessment that needs to be done under this rule. So that is one 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 caveat to make sure that people are aware that out of period adjustments are, are outside the scope of this rule. Okay, so Adam Chase, that's helpful. I think we listeners, myself, have a clear understanding of uh, what will actually require the clawback. But let's talk about what incentive compensation is actually in scope for this. Chase? Yeah, great question. Happy to take this one, Adam. You got some more talking up ahead, so that's that's why I'm here. You know, it's whenever you read these uh, rules or any kind of guidance, it's like everything has to be defined. And so I'm happy to take this question, incentive-based compensation. So the rule defines um, incentive-based compensation, IBC for short, as any compensation that is granted, earned, or vested based wholly or in part upon the attainment of any financial reporting measure, um, including stock options and other equity awards, regardless of whether the measures are included in SEC filing. So that's uh, pretty important. Um, Issuers will be required to recover erroneously awarded incentive-based comp. This includes... Uh, restricted stock, restricted stock units, performance share units, stock options, stock appreciation rights uh, that are granted or become vested based wholly or in part on satisfying a financial reporting measure performance goal. Uh, also, bonuses paid from a bonus pool, uh, the size of which is determined based wholly or in part, again, upon satisfying a financial por- uh, performance goal. Uh, the new rule defines erroneously awarded incentive-based compensation as the amount of incentive-based compensation received that exceeds the amount of IBC that otherwise would have been received had it been determined uh, based on their stated amounts. Um, erroneously awarded uh, IBC is computed on a pre-tax basis, and that's without regards to taxes paid by the executive officer. The SEC's adopting release provides examples of how to determine um, what's erroneously been awarded, uh, including the case of uh, cash bonuses from bonus pools and, and, and equity awards. 
Uh, the SEC also noted that if compensation that would be recovered under the rule has already been recovered under the recovery obligations of provisions, example, the 304 that we were talking about from SOX of the current of the current rules for misconduct, uh, then it would be appropriate to credit the amount already recovered against the amount otherwise recoverable under the new rule. Okay. Now, Chase, I know you mentioned several times in that answer um, around executive officer and uh, want to touch a little bit on who exactly is an executive officer that could be subject to these clawbacks. Adam, I don't know if you've got any takes on that. Yeah, so the rule is pretty explicit about the types of you know executive officers or directors that would be in the scope um, of this clawback rule, and it's it's you know largely it is a more broad definition. So you know at the onset of our conversation, we talked about. Um, a certain section of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that also had some clawback um, provisions in it. And that really was applicable only to the CEO and the CFO. But this rule expands beyond that. So you can really think about it kind of broken down into five different types of groups of individuals or parties that would be subject to the rules. So, you know, you've got the obviously play, you know, big players that you'd expect. So, you know, the, they say the president, which is kind of like your CEO, right? You've got your principal financial officer, so your CFOs, your principal accounting officer, so your CAOs, or in the absence of a chief accounting officer could also go down to the controller level. Any VPs that are in charge of a principal part of the business, a unit, a division, or some other function, and then any other officer that more or less performs any type of policy making functions, all of those individuals would be subject to this clawback rule. At a bare minimum, you know, you, you can expect anyone that's listed in a company's 10K under item 10, which is essentially like the list of all the executives and officers, directors of the of the registrant, that at a minimum is going to be everyone subject to this rule, but it likely will go beyond the, that group of individuals. Um, so, so definitely keep, keep that in mind. And then I know we talked about this briefly, but just to, to reemphasize is that the definition of an executive officer, like it will impact people that obviously don't necessarily play a part in the preparation of financial statements. And so regardless of whether or not that individual was involved in the financial reporting or anything that related to the, the errors or restatement events, et cetera, it doesn't matter. They're still subject to the recoverability um, assessment that needs to be done if they fall into one of those five groups. Adam, great point there. It seems a little aggressive for some of those other executives that aren't in uh, the preparation of these documents, but uh, that's the role they play. Yeah, the I, I think it's definitely, you know, it's a communication that I think companies are definitely going to have to, and just as part of like the process change and the change management of this rule is really educating those parties about this rule. And obviously amendments to um, various incentive-based compensation agreements are probably going to have to speak more explicitly to some of this clawback policies and language, um, just so everyone's aware of the changes and the, the kind of the repercussions if an event were to occur. Yeah, absolutely. Chase, want to come back on over to you. Talked a lot about this so far and defined what an executive officer is and does. Uh, but the next logical question is obviously how far back can the company go when clawing back this incentive compensation from their executive officers. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so clawback policies are required to apply uh, to excess incentive-based compensation received for up to three fiscal years. So three is as far back as we're going to go uh, before the date the company is required to prepare a restatement. And I can give an example here in a second. Uh, the look back period begins in the earlier of one, the date a company conc uh, concludes 
or reasonably should have concluded that it is required to repair a restatement, or two, the data court uh, regulator or other legally authorized body directs the company to prepare a restatement. Uh, so for example, if an issuer with the calendar year end concludes in October 2028, we're getting pretty far into the future here, uh, that a triggering accounting restatement is required and files restated financial statements in January of 2029, the recovery policy would apply to compensation received in the three years ended December 31, 2027, 26 and 25. Yeah, Adam, any thoughts here as well? Yeah, I think just a couple other things to tack on here is, um, you know, a lot of times I could see executives wondering or not if they can be indemnified against any of these kind of recovery policies. And so the rule is explicit that it doesn't allow companies, boards or whatever to indemnify or reimburse executives for any compensation that's clawed back, as well as if any executives essentially take out an insurance policy of their own in the event that something like this would occur and they would have to pay back. Companies aren't allowed to like reimburse for any type of insurance premiums for that, that coverage as well. And then I will also add that you know, there's limited circumstances, and I think the rule is intentional about that. This will be ply, applied in very rare cases, more or less, um, where a company could decide that to kind of forego recovery. Um, and they really list out just kind of three specific circumstances that would qualify where a company wouldn't have to, you know, seek out trying to recover any type of that um, erroneous compensation. And so, the three are essentially as if the expenses to essentially recover whatever consider you know compensation you're trying to bring back would be more expensive than the amount you're trying to recover then you can obviously it makes sense that you wouldn't necessarily have to go after that money if it's going to be more detrimental to shareholders to spend money on the the third party assistance to recover um, and then the other two, one relates to just if it were to violate any um, home country laws. So if you just think about any like foreign private issuers, there might be legal restrictions potentially on recovery of compensation. So a violation of any any kind of foreign laws um, could prevent recovery of that compensation. And then the last one is if recovery somehow could essentially jeopardize the tax qualifications of certain retirement plans under IRS regulations, then, you know, we would forego recovery of compensation in those circumstances. All right. Well, thank you on that. So, you know, both of you are experts in U.S. GAAP accounting uh, who are constantly focused on units of accounts and events that have financial statement reporting implications. Uh, what are the reporting implications of a clawback event here that our listeners need to be thinking about? Adam, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. Yeah. So again, like the rule is largely focused on disclosures. It's all about transparency. Um, obviously, a big focus of the SEC is around transparent financial information for investors and users of the financial statements. So this rule will trigger uh, the need for disclosures. If at any time during the last completed fiscal year, a company either was required to recover excess compensation, so they had some type of restatement or re, um, revision event that triggered that, that clawback policy, or if they still have an outstanding balance of excess compensation that they still need to recover that related to a prior year restatement, they'll still have to include these disclosures um, in, their, in, their, um, in their filings as well. So what are the disclosures exactly? So it's probably stuff that comes to mind that like, oh yeah, that makes sense that you'd have to put it in there. So, you know, one is obviously talking about 
um, that the date that the company decided they needed to restate financial statements or revise financial statements. So when did that information or come to light that there was an issue? Um, they need to disclose and explain the total excess compensation that's attributable to the restatement. So what did they erroneously pay out? Um, and explain why, or, or if they weren't able to come up with that amount. So let's say maybe just depending on the timing, they have to still kind of work through the amount of the erroneous compensation and at least just some language in there explaining why um, they haven't been able to estimate that yet. Uh, at the end of any reporting period, you got to disclose what's the remaining compensation that you're looking to recover. So, you know, we talked about this being applicable not only to current um, executives, directors, kind of that group of people, but it also could apply to former executives. So people that are maybe no longer with the company. So obviously maybe a little more challenging to try to work through recovery in those circumstances. So a lot of times there will be excess compensation that remains outstanding. So have to include, you know, disclosure around that. Um, if the compensation is based on, you know, there's a bunch of different financial metrics that could be directly or indirectly tied to how some of these incentive-based compensations are paid. If there's a certain compensation that's tied to stock price or total shareholder return, then you just have to have a little bit more description around how the estimates for um, the excess compensation was determined in that case. And then the last of like kind of disclosure is really just kind of calling out people that they're looking to recover money from. So the, the disclosure gets into you got a name specifically, uh, current or former officers that essentially have compensation that's been long outstanding. So 180 days or longer, how much do they still owe to, to the company that needs to be recovered? And then if you went through the analysis and the company, we kind of talked about reasons they could forego recovery just explaining why the company decided that they would forego recovery and then who did they forego recovery for and the amount of um, compensation that they're not going to pursue recovery of. Yeah. So Adam, I can imagine that if a company is actually having to claw back some of the incentive-based compensation from its executives, there can be a number of accounting considerations that we need to think through. Talk to me a little bit about how this rule is going to impact the accounting for things like this. Yeah, so the accounting for clawbacks, I mean, that guidance has existed in 718 even before this rule, right? So there's, you know, a lot of companies even prior to this rule had like voluntary clawback policies and provisions and some of their awards. So it's something that I think companies have dealt with. And and luckily, at least under the awards that are accounted for under ASC 718, the, the clawback guidance is, is pretty simple. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it generally doesn't have any, you know, the inclusion of a clawback policy in an award doesn't actually impact any of your day one accounting for that award. Said differently, it doesn't impact the fair value measurement of that award on the grant date. And then it really doesn't even impact the recognition of compensation um, cost, you know, for awards that are earned. So you really only have to deal with clawbacks when you actually have an event that triggers the clawback. So when the event the contingent event occurs that triggers that clawback, that's when you actually worry about the accounting for a clawback. So in this case, it wouldn't be until, you know, the restatement or the revision date, and they've decided that, hey, we need to go back and correct some, some either prior period or the, the current period financial statements. The next time we issue them, we'll have to correct the prior period. So when that happens is when you then account for the clawback itself. 
So at the time that a company wants to do or needs to account for the clawback, they essentially are just going to account for the consideration that is either already returned by the individual. So the cash they get back, the shares they get back, or, you know, they may even record a receivable. So, you know, we've talked about having to potentially claw back from former executives. Well, there could probably be a lot of legal disputes or, you know, things that happen or just trying to locate some people may be a challenge. You just, you know, you never know what the circumstances might be. So there could be a receivable that needs to be recorded for that individual um, to return cash or their shares. And also thinking about there could also be a treasury stock impact too for returning of shares to a company itself. And then the only other thing I'd add is obviously just from like the income statement impact side. So recovery of any of this like erroneously paid compensation um, is, you know, likely going to have an income statement impact as well. So just, you know, recognizing any income statement impact, you know, in some type of other income item and, you know, depending on the materiality of it, maybe having, you know, more disclosure around that as well. So people understand um, specifically where that was recorded, um, you know, it'd probably be prudent in this case. Yeah, I think one thing to add on what you're saying too is on the disclosures, getting into the, how the calculation of what is owed back um, is done. Cause and sometimes it's not going to be just, you know, a cut and dry calc. There's going to have to be some estimations involved. And the SEC's provided some guidance in their final rule about how to do that. So it's, uh, there's going to be some, some little bit of math involved in, in some of these uh, awards that are given based yeah. on other just and Especially if you have very like, complex awards yeah. and people have different individuals have different vesting conditions, but they're all tied to some type of financial information or derived from financial mm-hmm. information. I think the exercise of going through that kind of recoverability assessment, uh, I mean, it, it could be pretty tedious for yeah. sure. And then on top of that, then it's contacting those individuals and trying to figure out how they can kind of recoup that that compensation again. So definitely, uh, I think when a restatement or revision triggers the assessment, you know, it's, it's definitely a lot of work that companies have to tackle. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, you know, Adam, next question I've got for you is if a re- if a registrant needs to go back and amend the terms or conditions of its incentive-based compensation uh, awards to include a clawback policy, will that impact the accounting in any way or do we need to modify the awards? How does that typically handled? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I mean, Legally, you know, a lot of companies will probably need to go back and modify the um, their agreements for a lot of their incentive-based compensation to include whatever the policies are um, mandated by their national exchanges, making sure at least that their internal policies align with the requirements there. So there will be a legal modification. I think the question that comes in is whether or not that account is considered an accounting modification of the award. And so in most cases, adding any type of clawback provision to the terms and condition of an award doesn't actually trigger modification accounting under 718. And it really just ties back into what we talked about a couple minutes ago is that because, you know, a clawback provision doesn't actually impact the fair value, you know, based measurement of that award. So there's really no day one accounting you got to worry about for um, a clawback. It doesn't actually qualify as a modification of an award under 718 because a modification of an award either has to change the fair value-based measurement of the award or it has to change the vesting conditions or the classification of the award, and a clawback provision wouldn't do that. I will say if companies are thinking about this rule 
and they're going back and obviously adding in the clawback provision to the policy, but then they're also maybe looking at some of the vesting or performance conditions and they're deciding we maybe want to take out some of these ones that it are changes. tied. That could then trigger modification yeah. accounting if you're actually t changing vesting conditions and maybe like removing a performance condition that's tied to revenues or something that would be that could be impacted by a restatement of revenues, you know, and cause this, you know, erroneous clawback provision to come into erroneous compensation clawback provision to be affected. So Adam, any of that have an impact on grant date and, and how would we want to handle that? Yeah, that's another good point to raise because, you know, clearly for 718 awards um, to establish a grant date, you know, there has to be a mutual understanding of the awards terms and conditions. And so, you know, some people have wondered whether or not adding a clawback provision, could that potentially negate the establishment of a grant date. And I think the viewpoint, at least from when I read the rule and what I hear other people that have, you know, are interpreting this rule is, is that um, it's pretty objective and most companies will be pretty objective in what triggers the clawback and how that works and what the policies and procedures are for that. So in most cases, um, by adding that clawback language into awards, it should be enough to say we've got a mutual understanding um, between the grantor and the grantee um, to where it wouldn't necessarily impact the establishment of a grant date. But if for whatever rhyme or reason companies, it's viewed as, you know, their policy is very subjective or it's um, open to interpretation, I think there's potential potential that that could be challenged. Um, but I would imagine most people are going to try to be, you know, and obviously from a grantee perspective, people are going to want to really understand explicitly, like what is the criteria that's potentially could cause this clawback of my, 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 um, compensation. Yeah. Love it. Well, Hey, listen, I could talk to you guys for hours. I could listen to Adam for hours, uh, <laughs> but I do want to on the accounting podcast. On the accounting podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, on Apple music and Spotify. Uh, but I do want to be mindful of our listeners and their schedules and yours. Uh, any final thoughts on this matter that we'd be remiss to not mention before I let you go, Chase, I'll, yeah, pick it over I'll to you start first. with that. Um, materiality as always, is a hyper-focus area of the SEC. Of, it's going to be a hyper-focus area now of companies and the auditors. Um, getting back to this SEC conference, Adam, I actually listened to Paul Muntner, now the full SEC chief accountant, um, talk about this, and it, it was it was great. It's, you get back to it uh, just being it's an objective assessment, really. There's a lot of quantitative but also qualitative factors. Just getting back to the basics, too, of focusing on what is uh, material to a reasonable investor, what's important to them. And um, again, it's going to be a lot of focus on materiality with with potential misstatements. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I would even just add on to that, like speaking to like the materiality assessment. I know we went into this in our, yep. in our restatement podcast too a bit, but yeah, it really is that true. It's not just a quantitative number, but it's also a qualitative assessment that needs to be made. And actually one of the qualitative factors that the SEC talks about to consider is whether your error or misstatement essentially has an impact on management's compensation. So that's you know a factor they outline as something to think through. So bonuses, incentive compensation, exactly what we're talking about here today. You know, it maybe even like there could be an argument that quantitatively something doesn't seem as material, but because it has this direct impact that, you know, 
management or your auditors may may come to the conclusion that they actually um, would agree that it's material because of that reason from a qualitative perspective. Yeah. And then the only other thing I'd, I'd add is, you know, prior to this rule, especially for companies that had voluntary policies, you know, it, it, it did allow a little bit more discretion for boards to decide whether or not they would enforce the policy or not, or for certain individuals, they may or may not. But this rule, I think, it, it takes away a lot of that power. Um, so I think that there is discretion potentially in how they might recover compensation. So maybe your board is willing to set up a payment plan or something along that those lines for recoverability. But to decide not to recover from a certain individual, unless it kind of fell into one of those kind of forego, yep. you know, three, three buckets. buckets that we talked about, um, the rule puts a little bit more limitation on the discretion that boards can use. So I think that's important also to mention. Yeah, great point there. Well, gentlemen, I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much for your time, Chase. We really appreciate Thanks having, for having you me. here. Adam, always a pleasure, never a chore. Never. To our <laughs> listeners, thank you again for tuning into uh, this week's podcast of Accounting Matters, powered by Embark. We'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.